Genesis chapter 42. I will not read, uh, there's a portion there between 29 and 37, I think, that we will not read because it's just a repeat. But if you are able to stand for the entire reading, please do. If not, then obviously we are understanding of that. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we might live and not die. Then the then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm might befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for famine in the land was of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke harshly to them. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Then he said to them, no, you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies, but this by this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may go and get your brother while you, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and, and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest son, your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we did not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, and that there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he said he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and restore every man's money in his sack and gave and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place. He saw his money and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money has returned, been returned and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? 
When they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told them all that had happened to them, saying, let's go down now to verse uh, 36. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put two of my sons to death if I did not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. We pray that it would be a lamp to our feet, a light for our path. Give us eyes and ears and hearts and minds. Lord, we ask that you would open them all. I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Dear brothers and sisters, I wonder... If you have thought about recently what the incident was that the Lord God used to awaken you to your sin, your need to repent, and your need for salvation. What was the incident that God used to awaken you? Each of us have who have repented of our sin and placed our faith in Christ alone, have, by the grace of God, at some point in our lives, been made aware of our great sin against holy God. We've been made aware at some point in our lives that we need to be saved from the righteous judgment of God. What was that moment, that incident, For you, what was the incident that God used to awaken your soul? You were living, weren't you, when it happened? You were living your lives. You were going about your lives in the same way that you had always done. Until suddenly, almost in the flash of lightning, the course of your life, was changed in a moment by the sovereign grace of God. I can remember the evening when I was a 19-year-old young boy man driving home after an evening of bowling, taking the same road that I had always taken, listening to the same music that I had always been listening to. And then in a matter of seconds, A matter of moments, struck by a drunk driver. By all evidence of the car that I was in, should be dead. And yet walking away without a scratch on me. The course of my life would take an unexpected, uh, even unsought out path. I wasn't looking for that path. The Lord placed me on it. 
And here I am, 21 years later, standing before men and women of God who have similar incidents where God took them off of a path that they were on and placed them on one they weren't even looking for. Where were you when God awoke awoke you to your desperate need of Him? When you look back at that moment, now, however many years, months, days it has been, can you see now how the Lord was, prior to that incident, inching you closer and closer to Him? At the time, you may not have had any sense, but maybe now, the Lord has given you a panoramic view so that you can see the entire landscape of where God had been taking you and how it was at that moment He intended to take you from darkness to light. And now you see, maybe now you see the people that God had placed in your path to bring you to salvation. Maybe now, maybe now you see the places and the circumstances that were all providentially now, you see, ordered by God so that he might ultimately cause you to sorrow over your sin. Repent of it. Turn to Christ and be saved. This morning in the continued narrative of the generations of Jacob, we are given insight into the inner workings of the manifold wisdom of God who began to draw ten ruthless men to conviction, godly sorrow, and repentance unto life. And although what we are reading is the the account of Joseph, it really is still tying into the generations of Jacob. We will see that when Jacob hears of all of the things that have transpired, he will say, everything is against me. Jacob has no sense and no understanding that maybe in a matter of days or weeks or months, His sorrow will be turned to extreme joy. For the one whom he thought was dead is alive and is able to save. This morning, with God's help, we shall consider just two points. One very long and one very short. Of how God draws all of his sheep, those who are his, to himself. And does so with a call to repent. Number one, the uncovering of sin. Number one, the uncovering of sin. The final verses of chapter 41 move quickly, don't they? From the end of seven years of prosperity, very quickly into seven years of famine. We are not told much about the seven years of prosperity other than They gathered, they saved, and there was more than enough. But then we are quickly drawn into, placed into the seven years of famine. Where the scriptures say that famine was not only in the land of Egypt, but in all of the lands. In the 57th verse, we see this emphasis on just how bad the famine was. In verse 57 of chapter 41, the people of all the earth. 
came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. The scriptures are emphasizing the entire world is in need. The scriptures are emphasizing that everywhere, everyone is dying and in need of being saved. And there is supply in Egypt because God was using Joseph to save those through resources who were coming to escape the famine. We looked last week at how Joseph was a type of Christ. That when we were in spiritual famine, we were all called by God to come. He made the call, repent of your sins. Trust in Christ alone and be saved. And in doing so, we have been given an endless supply of spiritual nourishment in Christ. I said to the group who gathered this morning as we came to pray, at the end of the day, your Lord's Day, if you've attended both services, you're usually tired at the end of the day, aren't you? But I do hope that at the end of the day, it will be the kind of reflecting and saying, but wow, that was a wonderful day of worship. It would be, hopefully, like going to a wonderful restaurant. And at the end of your meal, you are saying, Gosh, I could just go lay down and sleep now because I have ate so well. Well, that is what it is for us in Christ. That Christ supplies us with spiritual nourishment. That He feeds us. That He waters us. And at the end, we say, Gosh, I am so satisfied in Him. I pray that that would be your experience every Lord's Day. The scriptures are, are emphasizing a, a widespread famine that has touched all of the world. And at this point, it is, it is almost as if the scriptures are calling us to ask the question, you mean all of the world? Even Canaan? Even the promised prosperous land of Canaan? And the answer is yes. Even Canaan. And we can see through this famine how God is, is using the famine to draw His people out. God is using a, an incident to draw His people out. Similar to your and my lives, or our lives, isn't it? There was an incident that God used to draw you out. In the very first verse, we see that the patriarch Joseph has discovered there is an abundance of resources in the land of Egypt. And he goes to his sons with this information. There is grain in Egypt. There is supply and resources in Egypt. They're standing there or sitting there as he comes to them and says, Sons, children... Egypt is where we will, how we will survive. And with the word Egypt, it is almost as if a clanging gong goes off in their souls. Sons, Egypt is where resources can be found. The clanging gong in their soul was God's call. Repent. Every single one of them. 
all ten of them, their hearts were struck with fear. Every single one of them, their hearts were struck with silence. It appears as though no word had been spoken about Egypt since they sold their brother Joseph there. It was a word that reminded them of their sin. That's the clanging gong. That's the call for God, from God, repent of your sin. You know those words. You know uh, the names of those people. Those locations that you would rather not drive past. Because they bring back all the memories of guilt and sin from your past. They are those sins. They are those places, those peoples that reminds you of your guilt. The name, the place, the guilt of Egypt was a sin that these men had been carrying for 22 years. 22 years without a confession, which means 22 years without repentance. It was the sin that had haunted them. You know those sins. It was the one that they had vowed amongst themselves. Maybe they had made a pact. Never speak about this. Lest we bring our father's gray head down to the grave. And it makes sense why Joseph says to them in the very next verse. Why are you staring at one another? What are you looking at each other for? I said there is resources in Egypt. It was oh their faces are looking at one another. As they all know what they have done. They know that they have betrayed their brother. They know that their brother is now a slave, at least they assume, in Egypt. The very name of Egypt, the very word of Egypt, it brings back the pleas that they said they heard. The pleas of their brother for mercy. The pleas of their brother not to do this. And I can imagine that Joseph yelled and screamed at the top of his voice until he disappeared in the distance. And those sounds of mercy, those sounds of pleading may have haunted them for 22 years. The very name of Egypt brings back the the memory of their sin that they have not repented of. Egypt held the conscience of these men in prison. Brothers and sisters, and that is what sin will do. Unless sin is brought to God, unless sin is repented of, it will always keep you confined in prison. Unless sin is repented of, it will always keep you shackled and unable to move freely in Christ Jesus. Unrepentant sin. They had hoped that maybe they would be able to move on from it. But if you belong to God, you will not be able to move on with your sin. And even those who think they are able to get along and live a life of sinful bliss, they will stand before God one day. They also will not be able to escape the reality of their rebellion against God. Sin must be repented of. 
Then as Joseph or Jacob looks at his guilt-ridden sons, he says to them in verse 2, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some from that place so that we may, listen to the words he says, live and not die. I wonder if you might be able to see the uncovering of their sin that God is doing even in these two verses. These men have been concealing a sin. There is famine all over the land. And the only way that they will be able to live is if they go to Egypt. You want to live? Repent of your sin. You want to live? Stop concealing it. You want to live? Confess it before God. They are called by their father to get up. And go to the place that is associated with their sin. And come face to face with it. You must reckon with your sin. You must be confronted with it. And in the mouth of their father. And later in the mouth of their brother. They will be used by God to declare the conscience of these men. Do this so that you might live and not die. Both from from their father Jacob and then later from their brother Joseph, they will hear the same phrase. Do this so that you will live and not die. Your guilt is before you. You can either confess it and live or you can refuse to confess it and die. Brothers and sisters, this is the same for those whom we love as well. We'll get into that in a moment. But at that moment when Joseph or Jacob says, excuse me, I'm going to probably mess that up a few times. When Jacob says to his sons, go down to Egypt. Rather than carrying guilt, they could have said to their father, Father, we have sinned. Father, we are guilt ridden. The look of on our faces is the look of guilt. It's the look of shame. We sold our brother, your beloved son, into Egypt. And we have been keeping this sin from you for 22 years. While their sin is being kept from their father, their sin is not being kept from God. While their father has no idea, maybe he has some kind of inkling, God knows all. And there is no place that these men could go to to conceal or hide their sin. But they would not confess their sin that day. The call came, repent! And the response from the men was, no. Not now. And the Lord is slowly, if you can think of blankets in the morning, being ripped off of your body. The worst thing in all the world, right? The Lord is slowly pulling the covers of their guilt and sin. They're trying to hide among the trees, covering themselves with fig leaves. And it is as though the Lord is saying to them, what have you done? God is calling these men to confess their sin. Through this famine, 
The Lord is positioning these violent, ruthless men to come face to face with holy God. And so these men, these ten, they journey down, down, down to Egypt. But Jacob does not allow one to go. Benjamin. Benjamin is uh, held back from traveling with his sons. And toward the end of the chapter, Jacob says, he's the only one I have left. Well, Lord, he has ten sons. But he almost treats Benjamin as if Benjamin is his only son. If I allow Benjamin to go with you, then what do I have left? Can you imagine the faces of these ten sons saying, you have nothing left? He does not allow Benjamin to travel with them for fear that harm may come upon Benjamin. Why would harm come upon Benjamin? Because harm came upon Joseph. And it appears as though Jacob has transferred or shifted the love that he had for his son Joseph to now his son Benjamin. Benjamin, whose mother died in giving birth to him. Benjamin, whose name was originally son of my affliction, but whose name was changed by Jacob to son of my right hand. And Jacob surely would not let that boy leave his right hand. He has chosen him to be his new favorite, uh, to be the new leader of his, of his children as Joseph once was. Jacob keeps Benjamin home and sends the ten ahead to Egypt. And it is once again a providential act of God. Benjamin stays back. And what does Joseph eventually ask for? Bring me Benjamin. The conversation that they will have essentially will be surrounded around Benjamin. If you want to live, bring Benjamin back. If you're really honest men, bring Benjamin back. There's a reason why in God's providence, Jacob decides to keep Benjamin back. God did this, but Jacob is the one who kept him back. Jacob was choosing to send his sons, yes. Jacob was choosing to keep Benjamin home, yes. But it was God all along who was orchestrating all of these events so that these men might know they have sinned against God. When you were called, you were living your lives. You were making choices. But those choices were not outside of the sovereign hand of God, ordering and ordaining all things and drawing you near to Him. God was doing this. God was positioning you. You think you happened to move where you moved by just your own choice? You think you happened to get the job that you got by just choice? You think uh, the, the person who died just died just randomly? That you happened to be involved in that life? God was doing this. There is no, no happenstance, no coincidences in God's universe. These men go down. And by Joseph going down and these men going down, it is the furthering of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. That Abraham's people, that God's people would be in a foreign nation, 
and that they would be there for 400 years. God said this. And that God would judge the nation that oppressed them and that God would release and set them free and bring them back to the land of promise. This was God's doing. This was not random. And so the brothers of Joseph, the ten men, they arrive in Egypt. In verse 6, now Joseph was the ruler of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And so if anyone was going to purchase anything, they needed to go to Joseph. We saw this in chapter 41 when Pharaoh is uh, being uh, asked for supplies. Help me, Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. If anyone is going to buy anything, they must go to Joseph. Once again, the famine is the incident that God is using to draw these men out from covering their sin to the place of confession. They would have stood out. Now, again, the world was coming. If you can imagine uh, droves of people coming into the land, the nation of Egypt, so that they might be saved from the famine. And then here are these ten men. They are from this group of people called Hebrews. And they would have been dressed like one. For Hebrews were shepherds. So among the nations, we might imagine that there were ten men who stood out like a sore thumb. They would have gathered in presumably long lines to be examined as to their reason for crossing the border of Egypt. Uh, there was great fear in Egypt that the Assyrians and that one of the nations I can't remember at the, at the moment, that they would invade their land. And so there was borders that were constructed around Egypt that were called the King's Gate. Anytime someone crossed that gate, what are you doing here and why? So they have crossed the, the borders. They have come to buy grain and then they are directed to stand in front of the one who's in charge of selling the grain so that he might investigate why are you here so they go. They make their way into the line. You know those long lines that we are now in in the grocery stores. They make their way into this long line and finally stand before Zaphonaphaneah. Behold, Zaphonaphaneah, the one who furnishes the sustenance of the land. Dressed in royal Egyptian garb, there is their brother Joseph. They did not recognize him with his Egyptian attire. But as sure as day, he recognized them. They were a little older, a little gray, but they were his brothers. When they reached the presence of what they thought was only an Egyptian ruler, what did they do? All ten of them prostrate themselves before Joseph. They bow down before Joseph. And the dream that he had had 22 years earlier, the, the dream of the chiefs coming and bowing down before him. 22 years later comes to pass. Verse 7, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them. So therefore he would not be speaking to them in their Hebrew language, but he would be speaking to them through an interpreter in Egyptian language. 
And the Bible says that he spoke harshly to them. After all of these years, the ones who have betrayed him are standing right in front of him. You can imagine the sense of shock. Maybe even the sense of escape. You know those times when you see someone that you have not seen in a long time and don't care to see. That our responses are either fight or flight, aren't they? Uh, You know, when you see them, I can remember being with my mother sometimes and uh, grocery stores or in shopping places. And Oh, there's those people from church. Go around. Hide. Hide. Duck down. Get low. But you know the feeling when you see the person who has harmed you in some kind of way. You've not seen them for a long time and then all of a sudden they are right in front of you and there is shock. All of the feelings come rushing back, be they betrayal or anger, disappointment. And you don't know whether to walk straight up to them and give them a piece of your mind or to flee the scene of the crime as quickly as possible. Joseph keeps his composure. These are his brothers. I don't know if you can imagine, but he has not seen one family member for 22 years. Uh, He must have had this mixture of joy, wanting to throw his arms around his brothers and say to them, it's me, Joseph. And then also this mixture of pain. No longer the little boy that he once was, who now has the authority to put them to death simply by suggesting that they are spies. The Lord has given Joseph great discernment. And it's evidence in what he does next. He, the Bible says that he speaks harshly to them. And it's important for us to ask, what's the reason for Joseph's harsh tone toward them? And we might automatically think that it was because Joseph was bitter. Who would not be bitter? Uh, unless we think that Joseph was anything less than human, that could be a possibility. But I think the more likely explanation for Joseph's harsh tone was wisdom and not bitterness. When we come to the end of the 41st chapter, we are given a picture of a man who has greatly matured, who has great wisdom, so much wisdom that the king of the day says that the whole world should come to Joseph. And that anybody who is in need, go to him. He will know what to do. He's put everything in all of the nation in Joseph's care. Joseph is a great man of wisdom or a man of great wisdom. Because God was with him. And even Joseph's actions from this point forward are being led by God. I wonder if you've seen it in verse 7 and verse 8. There's a phrase that seems to appear twice it is that Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them verse 7 and then in the very next verse but Joseph recognized his brothers the point is yes Joseph recognized his brothers these are the ones who sold him into slavery but just as I said a moment ago Joseph was also being used as the tool in God's hand to draw these men out from their sin. 
God is using Joseph to expose the wickedness of these men. So while it is true that Joseph recognized his brothers, it is even more true that God recognized these men. That God saw these men for who and what they were. That their sin would not go undetected from the all-seeing eye of God. And isn't that what, what David said in Psalm 139? When he said, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The children's catechism asks, can you see God? And the answer is, I cannot see God. But God always sees me. There is nowhere that these men can hide to escape their sin before God. God knows us. They were sinful men. Do you know what kind of men these were? They wiped out an entire people. As their father was trying to make a peace treaty with a people, they wiped out the entire people. They took money in exchange for their brother. They devised a wicked plan to deceive their father. These are wicked men. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. (laughs) Often when we are sharing the gospel, as our brother Scott testified this morning, what seems to be gospel truth comes off as harsh to the unbeliever. Because the unbeliever sees himself as being self-righteous. Why do I need God? Why do I need His Word? Why do I need the church or the saints? I'm fine without them. And let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you are sharing the gospel, do not let the first things that you say to them be, Jesus loves you. Well, doesn't he? What is the expressed evidence of the love of Christ? It is that he has died for you. How do you know that you are one of the ones that Christ has died for? It is if you hear the gospel, repent of your sins, turn from your own righteousness and turn to Christ for salvation. If you do this, Jesus loves you. If you say, Jesus loves you, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And the person says, no, no thanks. I think I'm fine. Then Jesus does not love you. At least he has not at that moment shown that you are one of the ones of whom he has saved. So when you begin with the gospel, start by telling someone, God is holy. He has made you to love him. He's created you to worship Him. But you, in Adam, have deviated from that purpose and you've rebelled against His holy law. You must repent of your sins. For as you stand, you stand ready to receive the holy, righteous judgment of God lest you repent of your sins and turn to Christ. There's the good news. There is a way that you can be saved. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. 
God comes to us with a, a harsh word, doesn't he? Joseph had a harsh word. God's word to us is harsh. Repent. Repent is an acknowledgement of what? Of sin. But God is not being harsh. Repent is actually a loving thing. Because we are the ones who have been harsh to God. God is not being harsh to us. Do you know that the call to repentance is one of the most loving things that you can ever call someone to? It's not a harsh call. It's a loving call. The Lord was using Joseph to call these men, Repent. Do this and live. He says to them, and, and listen to how Joseph does this. Where have you come from? They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognizes brothers. They did not recognize him. But do you realize the first thing he says to them? Uh, the first thing that he accuses them of? What does he say? You are spies. Do you remember what they used to call Joseph? Do you remember what they used to accuse him of when Joseph would go and give a report to their father about them? Your father's spy. Oh, here comes the dreamer. Father's little songbird. The first thing that Joseph says to them when they come is he speaks harshly to them. They spoke harshly to him. You are spies. These men, do you know what they insist that they are? We are honest men. We've just uncovered all of the things that they are, sin they are guilty of. They are guilty of wiping out a nation. They are guilty of uh, selling their brother into slavery. They are guilty of deceiving their father. They are anything but honest men. And yet they've come to Joseph and their defense before Joseph is, we are, we're good guys. And Joseph continues to insist, no, you're not. You're really, really not. In the 13th verse, the brothers begin to almost crack because Joseph says, you're spies. You've come into the land to, to find out where our weaknesses are. You've come to destroy our nation. You're going to die. I've, it's almost as if Joseph is saying to them, as he's pretending to be Egyptian, I promise you on the life of Pharaoh, I'm going to kill you if you don't tell me who you are and why you're here. They begin to crack. They begin to, to spew it all out. Your servants are 12 brothers in all. The son of one man from the land of Canaan. Our youngest brothers with our father today, and one is no longer alive. They are almost uh, just spew, almost like Chunk did in the in the Goonies. They're just letting it all out. You, some of you don't know about that. It's fine. They're letting it all out, and they've also given him more information than he's asked for, but information that he would have liked to know. As the pressure is is mounting of death and life, because Joseph is threatening them. The Lord is more and more beginning to pull back the covers. You're about to die. Here's everything that's gone on. Here's everything that we've done. Uh, almost everything. And what, is, what has Joseph learned? He's learned that his father is still alive. 
That's good news. He's learned that his youngest brother is also alive. That's also good news. But he's also learned that his brother has been kept from traveling with them. Now, Joseph, being the discerning man that he is, says, Huh, father kept back Benjamin. This would mean that Jacob loves his son, Benjamin, the way that he used to love me. So Joseph, the Lord uses Joseph to put these men to the test. You're honest men? Prove it. Verse 16 and 17, go and get your brother. Send him here. First he says, you're all going into jail. Someone needs to come and bring your brother. But it's a test. And he says, if you do this, you will live. What's the, the, the test? What have they said they are? They have said they're honest men. And Joseph said, prove it. Let's give you another shot. You destroyed one brother whom you loved or who your father loved. Bring the other one. Let's see if he can get here safely. Prove that you are honest men. If you do this, you will live. Joseph knows. I know everything you've done. You've been carrying this sin for 22 years. You've been carrying this lie all of these years. And you have the audacity to claim that you're honest men. He puts them in jail for three days. It could be that Joseph put them in the exact same jail that he was in before he was elevated to prime minister. And can you imagine the three days and three nights that these men had while they were in jail? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? After three days, Joseph brings them out. And he says to them, Do this and you will live. Listen to what he says. For I fear God. Once again, the very statement that was said before they were sent to Egypt. Do this and you will live. And Joseph is now here being used by God to say, I fear God. Do you? If you do... Do this and you will live. It is the theme of the entire chapter, brothers and sisters. Do this and you will live. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ and you shall live. It was what God had said to Canaan. Or to Cain. It was the call. If you do what's right, you will be accepted. Do this and live. It was the, the call to Israel after they were bitten by the venomous snakes. Look to the bronze snake and you will live. Do this and you will live. It was what the Lord Jesus Christ declared as He preached the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do this and you shall live. It's the theme of the whole scripture. Turn to Christ. Do this and you shall live and not die. These men haven't the slightest idea that this Egyptian ruler, their eyes are still blind, is their brother Joseph. He is disguised by the Egyptian guard, but he does not disguise his faith in God. Do you know that, that in this entire narrative, these men have not yet once uttered the name of God? 
And every time Joseph speaks, he says the name of God. I fear God. And he's saying to them, the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And still they have no clue. Who is this guy? Because his God was not yet their God. Do you know when you speak to people about Christ and they have a, an, under, a, an awareness of Jesus, but they don't know him? As our brother Joe, uh, Scott said in, in witnessing, I thought I was talking to a brother and realized I was just talking to an unbeliever. They were unrepentant. And Joseph knows they haven't changed. So it's a test. Have you changed? God through Joseph will give these men another chance to walk in repentance. And he gives them a new, a new plan. You go, but one will stay. If you bring the one back, then you can buy grain in the land and trade for free or freely. But if you go and you don't come back, this one's dead. Go bring back the favored one. Do this and you will live. Are you honest men? Verse 19, that's the question. If you are honest men, these men begin to crack again. It, it, it was as though the, the first gong that came when their father said, go to Egypt, was the first kind of uh, slight crack and then little by little, they are being cracked open by the grace and sovereign will of God. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. This is why, brothers and sisters, when you are sharing the gospel with your friends and your family members, those whom you are concerned about, call them to repent. Do not make them feel comfortable in their sin. You're fine. You're fine. Turn from your sin and live. Don't make anyone feel comfortable in their sin, even if it means they turn on you. It's the gospel. It's what God has said. Be faithful to that call. They begin to crack. And Joseph is standing before them. And I think it's important that we read it. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother. It's the first time they've admitted it. It's 22 years. It's the first time they said we're guilty. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. And yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress, the one that was on him, is now upon us. Reuben answered, saying, didn't I tell you, do not sin against the boy. And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. What's going on? They're sorrowful. But listen, it's not yet a godly sorrow. It is only at this moment still a worldly sorrow. I know I've done wrong, but I'm still not turning to God in repentance. We'll talk about this in a moment, the difference between a worldly and godly sorrow. But they were feeling and experiencing a worldly one at this moment. And they tell us details that were not given to us in chapter 38. 
we saw the distress of his soul. We saw how he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. We saw how even Reuben says, I told you guys, don't do this. Don't sin against him. And as they're having this discussion among the ten, can you imagine this? Everyone look for just a second. As they're discussing, Joseph is looking at them all. Confessing how they wronged him. He's right there. Haven't you ever wanted the person who has hurt you to just tell you, I'm sorry? Or just to acknowledge, I did wrong. I messed up. For you to hear it. Because there's a healing in your own soul, isn't there? They finally admitted they did wrong. Whether it was a parent, a brother, a sister, a friend, someone who you loved at one point to just say, listen, I messed up. And I'm sorry. He can't even stand there. He has to leave the room for just a moment as he begins to weep. And it is as if the Lord is saying to him, you were right, Joseph. It was wrong. What they did to you was wrong. For 22 years, you may have been thinking about it. How could they have done such a thing? And it's almost as if God is saying, I I wasn't going to let them get away with it. Those who have hurt you, They will stand before God one day. No sinner will escape unjudged. And he understands every single word. Joseph. They're finally showing remorse. He turns away to weep. Uh, It appears as if he steps out of the room. The brothers are left there wondering, what has just happened? Joseph returns and then uses wisdom again. Takes Simeon. He stays, you go, bring me back your son. But but then he does something else. They have paid a price for grain. And as they are preparing the grain to be sent, along with these men, Joseph says, the price that they have paid for the grain, put it back in their sack. Don't tell them. So they leave. And as they leave, they, they lodge at a place of rest and they begin to feed their animals. And as they pour out the feed, there pours out the money that they had used to buy grain. Now, when they do, there is shock and awe and fear that comes upon them. But I wonder if it was because possibly the amount that they paid for the grain was the amount that they received for their slave brother. Because the answer, the question that they have is, what is God doing to us? (laughs) And it's the very first time they ever uttered the name of God in all of this narrative. The Bible says their, their hearts sank. They began to tremble in fear and ask, What is God doing? It may be for the very first time that they are God conscience. That they are realizing that they 
have sinned not first and foremost against Joseph, but sinned first and foremost against God, and they are trembling with fear. This, my dear friends, is the response of the gospel. Why? Because we first introduced the bad news. You are a sinner against God. You need to be saved. The answer, response should be, what must I do? It was a nowhere to run, nowhere to hide kind of fear. So they go home. They recount all of the things that have happened to their father. The harsh ruler, the debate with the, over their honesty, the telling of their family in Canaan, the command to leave the youngest brother, or to leave the brother and go and bring the youngest, the sack of grain, the money in the grain, and that if they did all of these things that were commanded, they would live. And at the end of the chapter, there seems to be a further breaking of their conscience as their father says to them, Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. And now you want to take him. Do you want to see me die? He's the only one I have left. And it's almost as if Jacob is, is implying, I know you did something to Joseph. I know something happened to Joseph that you will know about, but you have not told me. They've not fully cracked yet. That won't come until another chapter and a half. But those scales are slowly being removed. Second and finally and very quickly, sorrow. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you, like me, are at this point asking, why didn't Joseph just say to his brothers, guys, it's me. Look at all that God has done. The dreams that I had all those years ago, God has made them come true. I'm the most second most important man in all of Egypt. You have nothing to worry about. I will provide for you and our family. Why didn't you just, just come out with it? It's because Joseph knows by the discernment and wisdom of God. There is a very real difference between knowing that you have sinned. And knowing that you have sinned against God and that he has set his holy face against you. It's the difference between regretting all that you have done. And turning to God in regret and repentance and faith. Believing that God can pardon all your sins and bring you to reconcile with him. It's a difference. Second Corinthians 7, 9 says, I rejoice and now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might su not suffer any loss through us. Listen to this, anything through us. For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. I know I gotta stop. I know I got to stop with this addiction. I know I got to stop with these vices. I know I got to stop. And then do what? Just be clean. You stopped cursing. Good for you. Now what? You, you stopped looking at uh, things that will pollute your mind. Good for you. Now what? This fact is illustrated for us in the end of the 26th 
and the beginning of the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew. Very briefly, two men sinned. And two men sinned greatly. Two men have betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. But one has denied that they even know him three times. While the other has betrayed Jesus for three, thirty pieces of silver. Two men regretted their sin. Two men wept. Two men had sorrow. And there would not be much difference between these two men. Between their weeping. Except for the heart of their sorrow. One man in his sorrow. Evidence that God's law had been written on his heart and that he had sinned. But he does not turn to the one who can forgive his sins or restore him. Instead he turns inwardly. And dives deeper into despair and kills himself in ruin. The other man had a godly sorrow. He wept bitterly. He evidenced that God's law had been written on his heart, but he does not turn inwardly. He turns outwardly to the only one who was able to save him. Until finally we see him on the beach with the lover of his soul asking, do you love me? And his response being, you know that I love you. We... And those whom we love will only be saved if we come to the Lord saying, Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to that cross I cling. These men, they thought they were just going down to buy grain. They had hoped that they could just get in and get out. Not so with God. Some people you're inviting to this church, they're coming, some of them, to judge the church. I've seen their faces sometimes. Let's see what you have for me. Let's see how spectacular you might be. We all saw spirit and truth. We present simple worship. And then they leave here saying, eh, sometimes. Sometimes. Well, obviously, more than sometimes. Not very impressed. We don't come to judge God. God judges us. We can't just get in and get out if we belong to God. We get in and we can't leave. Bobby came once upon a time. He came in. He heard the word of God. He brought his wife. She came in. She heard the word of God. They've brought their family. Senia is here. Isaac is here. Because when you come, you don't just come in if you belong to God and check it out. You come and you can't leave. You belong to him now. And the same could be said for each and every one of us in our own testimonies. We weren't looking for him. He found us. Placed us on a path we weren't even searching for. And now I'll never leave it. God does this. Even if it means He needs to speak harshly to us, it's so that we might be saved. I wonder if I could end this way. Do you have a 22 year old sin? 
from it and live. Let's pray.